Welcome to Everything Imaginable, the podcast for curious minds from KGRA Radio. And here is your host, Gary Cochileo. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Everything Imaginable. My name is Gary Cacciolillo, and today we have a special guest, Mark Ireland. He wrote the book Soul Shift. Welcome to the show. Hey, ha- thanks for having me, Gary. It's great to be here, and I'm uh, looking forward to the conversation. Yeah. And um, so, so <clears throat> first, let's start. Um, uh, like, I'm sure like a lot of people are not going to know. Um, who your father actually was, Richard Ireland, the, the famous psychic. Yeah, so I grew up with a father who was pretty well known back in the mainly 60s, 70s, and early 80s. Um, and he counseled, well, first off, he started off, I guess you'd say in a spiritualist church type of environment. And then he had his own church, which was non-denominational but this was an environment where he could demonstrate his gifts, his abilities as part of the whole, um, I guess the message, you know, that we're more than a body and a brain and, uh, but actually demonstrated in a way that people would resonate with and not just have to rely on blind faith. Later on, pretty much mid to late sixties, he branched out into the secular world and began demonstrating in other types of venues and ended up counseling celebrities like Mae West, who I got to meet when I was 19, uh, Glenn Ford, da- uh, David Jansen, Amanda Blake. And I even have a letter from Mamie Eisenhower that seems to indicate he must have uh, provided counseling to the <laughs> President Eisenhower and, and Mamie Eisenhower back in the 50s. That's so great. growing up with a father like that was really interesting and intriguing in daily life, but it was something that was normal to me. So when other people were really intrigued by it, it didn't seem like any big deal to me. But, you know, our father just kind of knew what was going on all the time and he couldn't get away with a lot. <laughs> you know, that's something my mom used to threaten me with. She goes, I'm psychic. I could know what you're thinking. <laughs> yeah. But you're, in your case, your dad really was psychic. Yeah, he, he was. I mean, he was very clairvoyant, so he had, you know, kind of that broader knowledge of, of things that he couldn't have known through the five physical senses, and I'd say he was telepathic, too, and uh, he had a lot of abilities even beyond that in terms of spirit communication and things like that, and that's really what touched me the most. I mean, the psychic stuff was really cool, and it's kind of what dazzled people and got them intrigued and maybe stretched their thinking a bit, but mm-hmm. I always... Um, was most touched by that, what I saw as the, the mediumship or the spirit communication, whatever, whatever term you choose to use. Um, and that stuck with me uh, and gave me a confidence that there's more than just this physical existence. Awesome. And then it sounds like, like afterwards in your book, like you sort of, guys, you grew up, you sort of, you know, took like more of a business route in life rather than a spiritual route. I think there's always a spiritual part of me there, and I, I never lost that. But I guess who wants to be their parent, right? So I um, took my own path, and I went to college, uh, university, got a degree, and then got married at a pretty young age, went into the business world, had a couple of kids, and, and was going about that path, and probably got a little too wrapped up into it, you know, trying to move up the ladder and you know, do all that kind of stuff, worldly achievement stuff, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, so that 
that's true. Um, I think part of that is because of the nature of my personality. And the other part is, you know, even though my father felt that I was psychic as well, I just, it's kind of like if you're, if you're in, if you're a basketball player and your dad's Michael Jordan, um, you know, you really got to measure up. <laughs> yeah, right. It's a lot of pressure to go down that path. Um, and, you know, we were just different people too, but I always, uh, admired my dad's abilities and the work that he did. And, uh, it, uh, it helped me, you know, through a lot of phases of my life. And then you had a, uh, a tragedy happen to you, um, that kind of changed your trajectory. It sounds like what I read. Yeah. That's a good way to put it. So, Correct. So I was just cruising along this business world mode and um, doing all that and spending all my mental and physical energy in that vein. Um, and I love my family and was close to my kids and my wife, but probably could have put more energy there. And um, back in January 2004, my youngest son, Brandon, unexpectedly passed. And that really pulled me back into just thinking about and remembering everything that I'd seen when I was, when I was younger with my dad and um, gave me co more confidence and kind of helped me over the hump in terms of coping with Brandon's passing. And it helped my wife and my older son, Stephen and other family members as well. But it really kind of thrust me back into the field that my dad had been in. And now I was like ready to really get a deeper dive into it and really think about the things I'd seen before, the things my father had taught, and then kind of read on my own and go on my own journey. Um, so yeah, uh, that was a really an unexpected event because it was uh, a day when I'd been traveling the week prior on business. I got home on a Friday night, said hi to my son, Brian, and gave him a hug. Then the next morning, I learned that he was gonna go on a hike behind our home in Scottsdale, Arizona, in the McDowell Mountains. And uh, I found, had a really kind of premonition, kind of bad feeling about it, and tried to talk him out of it. And then I thought, you know, I'm just being a worrying parent and I'm overreacting. Um, but I did even just as the last words I said to him were, Brandon, please don't go, because I just had that lingering feeling. And he said, uh, his last words to me was, we're going, Dad. Kind of like in conveying, stop mm -hmm. worrying, you know, you're just being a worry ward. And um, it was... Late that day, I got a call, and I thought, you know, it might be Brandon touching in, let me know he was back, but it was actually Stephen, my older son, relaying information that Brandon was in distress. Um, the other boys that were on the mountain with him noted that he had passed out, and they were trying to resuscitate him, and they needed a, a life flight helicopter, but Stephen was working at the time, and um, the boys on the mountain, their phone reception was very poor and intermittent, so... Uh, I then called the authorities to get help. And by the time we drove across town and got back to our home, uh, there was a crowd of spectators and uh, fire truck, ambulance, and then the helicopter came down. And it was not long after that, they introduced us to a chaplain and uh, found out that Brandon had passed. So that was kind of a low point uh, for anybody who's a parent. You can't imagine your yeah. kid passing before you. And it's, it's very, very difficult and it's uh, shattering and, no matter what you believe or your faith or whatever, you have to go through a grief process and it'll be longer for some than others, but it's brutal. Um, 
but I would say within, you know, a couple of weeks, we were making good progress in terms of how we cope with that. And um, we, I don't want to say recovered, you, you always think about that child in your life and how it would be and where they would be at this stage of life uh, if that hadn't happened. Um, and you pray for them and you think about them daily. And um, sometimes you feel a sense of connection with them too. But uh, you do have to go through that brief process. It's, it's just a natural part of being a, a human. Right. And from what I read, like, it, you and him were, were very close. You had a good relationship. I mean, you guys even would jam and play Iron Maiden together. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. I used to, I got into a rut in terms of what I play. So I play guitar, he played bass. Um, but, you know, he's like, Dad, you need to learn some new songs. So he had me learn a, a couple uh, Iron Maiden songs. I think The Dream of Mirrors was one and some other things. So we even jammed that last morning before he left too. So I always remember um, one song I was wanting him to learn was a song called Low by a band called Cracker. I think they're out of England. But uh, so that was one of the last songs we jammed to. So I always remember that. But uh, we had a good time and uh, he uh, actually became a pretty accomplished bassist. He's better than I was on the guitar. Uh, <laughs> so that was, that was a point, you know, where, We were closer where other parents didn't do that kind of sludge. Right. Yeah, I couldn't I couldn't imagine my dad like jamming the Iron Maiden with me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that he uh there I think as he got into playing um the bass more and got more uh, got better at it, that he he found some of these bands that he was unaware of. Like he did a lot of he really liked Pink Floyd mm -hmm. and uh, played some of that uh, their tunes and then uh, there were some other bands along those lines but the heavier metal hard rock stuff i think he discovered i made and i think because of the complexity of some of their music and the guitar right. parts all the harmonizing guitars and the bass was probably a little more challenging and he liked that yeah he i mean definitely has a good bass player yeah yeah they're all really good musicians and bruce dickinson's voice is crazy i don't know how he doesn't blow it out <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I actually saw him, I guess, maybe five or six years ago, like right after he had throat cancer, too. And he still sounds great. Oh, that's awesome. I've seen him live once, and that was probably, it's, I'd have to check, but I think probably 10 years ago, eight to 10 years ago, something like that. Awesome. And uh, so, so this is like where it seems like you started – um, reaching out to other psychics to contact him. Yeah, that's true. So I would say the first thing that I did now, my father by this point had passed. He'd been gone a number of years, but my uncle was still around and he had similar abilities to my dad. He was a psychic and a medium and a psychic is somebody who basically can share information um, without use of the five physical senses, but a medium would also have psychic abilities, but they can connect with spirits of people who have passed. And, um, there's you know, no clear way for how this works exactly, but I think the, the best explanation is telepathy with someone who's deceased, mm -hmm. with the soul, the mind of that, that person. So um, the first person I talked to was my uncle, and it was just actually hours after I learned that my son had passed. 
and he asked if he could do anything to help. And I just said, well, if you get any kind of message or information that you can share, I really appreciate it. It was a couple of days later, I was in the mortuary uh, making arrangements and, and then either I called him or he called me. I can't remember. It's been a number of years, but uh, contacted him on the cell phone and he said, Hey Mark, I didn't want to talk to you. Um, and he then explained that the night before he had tried to connect and he really got nothing. But that morning he woke up and did a morning meditation and my father had come to him and he was kind of the mediator of communication. Um, and he said that he was there for Brandon when Brandon had passed and he helped him adjust and cross over. Uh, and that Brandon relayed through my dad that he wanted us to know we were the best parents he ever could have had which was great to hear, but what I got along with that was some verifiable information um, before the autopsy had been conducted, because we really didn't know the cause of death. We had just heard descriptions from his best friend, Stu, who had been on the mountain with him. So my uncle conveyed that my dad said Brandon's death was caused by a lack of oxygen that resulted in a decrease in blood oxygen level and, a, and heart failure. And just a few days after that, I spoke to the physician who had conducted the autopsy, and she conveyed that Brandon had uh, suffered a severe asthma attack, which had lowered his blood oxygen levels and caused cardiac arrest. So my uncle basically told me before the autopsy was done the cause of death. So that meant even more when it was accompanied by, you know, validating information. Um, and then after that, you know, I, I think, I don't know if it was, it was right around that time. I wanted to have some sort of personal direct connection as well. And before I reached out to other mediums, I um, decided to kind of sit in a quiet meditative state in a darkened room, which I did. I'm not a great meditator, but this time I was able to quiet my mind pretty well. And within a very short period of time, I saw an image in my mind's eye of Brandon smiling like he was joyful and happy, which felt good. But right after that, I saw a symbol of a cross with an oval loop at the top. I'd seen people wear those. Um, before and seen them around, but I really didn't know what they were, or what they meant. So this caused me to go Google, you know, cross with oval loop at the top, only to find out it was an Ankh, which is the oldest cross of human history. I think it's on the order of 5,000 years old. Mm -hmm. The lower portion means physical life and the oval loop at the top means eternal life. So really what I got out of that was something I didn't know the meaning of. I had to research to convey to me, the skeptic, you know, mm -hmm. that, your, your son is alive and he's happy and he's now in eternal life. After that, um, there were a number of things that kind of brought about my meeting with some mediums and uh, some very interesting findings. And I'd be happy to touch on those if you, unless you have another question. In Absolutely. Cause that's one of the parts that I found really interesting is how you saw like three mediums afterwards and how they gave all similar information to you. And yeah, yeah, and, it was, and it was like, like, because like, you went out and you were looking for not just for, you know, um, somebody to communicate with your son, but you're going through a process of verification also. Yeah. So even though I believe in the phenomenon and experience the father who had this, I'm a pretty grounded person and skeptical, not in a bad way, but just skeptical to make sure that um, I'm open minded, but. I just want to, don't want to blindly accept things without evidence. Um, and especially with something like this, where it's very important to me to, to know that you know, if I'm getting information that it's truly from my son, it's verifiable kinds of information. So the first, <laughs> the first kind of synchronistic event that happened along these lines that I found interesting was 
Um, I was watching a news report about a research study being done at the University of Arizona at the time and where they were actually working with mediums under blinded conditions to see if they could produce specific uh, meaningful information to sitters. And the sitters were sitting separated from the mediums. They couldn't talk to the medium until after the process had been done. But basically uh, a third party proxy uh, at the lab was asking the medium questions and the medium have to answer those and give as much detail as they could. And the medium featured in this news clip was Alison Dubois, who later became famous because of the show Medium, which was kind of based on her life, at least loosely for some degree, but you know, more <laughs> in other ways. But she uh, was not yet famous, however. Um, when I saw this clip, I thought, wow, she's really good because they, they had showed some of the statements she'd made and how specific they were and then interviewed the sitters afterwards to get confirmation for, hey, did this make sense? Did that make sense? And, and it came down you know, to a variety of things from maybe names to hobbies or somebody liked to go to Las Vegas to gamble or whatever. Um, and I thought to myself, wow, I'd love to get a reading from her and I'd love to be in that lab you know, as a test sitter someday. And um, ironically, the very next day, I get a phone call from a man named Jerry Conser who had been friends with my father and he said, hey, Mark, I know what you've been through, and uh, I know someone who might be able to help you. Her name is Allison Dubois, and here's contact information if you want to try and get a reading from her. <laughs> so I thought that was a little beyond chance. Right. <laughs> I did call and schedule a reading, but even then, even though the show Medium had not yet come out, she was really well-known um, and had a big following. So it took me until August. So this is February. I, had, I couldn't get a reading until August that year. But um, so in the course of these various readings that I pursued, I was very cautious about making sure that people didn't know anything about me in terms of, uh, you know, up front. I didn't want them to be front loaded with any information. So going in, they would just have to give me whatever they got. Um, now, another thing that happened before the readings even started, which was probably one of the most compelling things of all, um, is detailed in a chapter called The Other Side. Mm -hmm. And what had happened here was, if you go back to the day that Brandon passed on the mountain, there were another group of hikers behind them. And they uh, got to where Brandon was laying on his back and they tried to help, but they were too late. He had already passed. So um, one of the people in this group, his name was James Linton, and he was very frustrated at the time. And he kind of called out, hey, God, why did you send me here to help? these people when I can't help them, it's too late. So he was very frustrated by his inability to be there, but not do anything to be helpful. Yeah. But so um, there was an online obituary for Brandon and I would look at, you know, the entries there from time to time because people would leave comments. And I saw it from this James Linton and somebody else. And they said, Hey, we were on this group that came to where Brandon was. Um, and if you'd like to talk to us, here's our contact information. And, so we reached out to him and became friends. He was actually a musician. He was, a, he was playing out at, at clubs and things. And he was also a studio musician recording some original music. And uh, so it was probably six months later, we were going on a cruise. And that cruise was to celebrate Brandon's graduation from high school. But since he couldn't physically come with us, we took his best friend, Stu, which is the boy I'd mentioned earlier, who had mm -hmm. been on the mountain with him and we also took our son Stephen and this was like a seven-day cruise and before we left James um, asked if he could borrow Brandon's bass guitar because he needed it for 
uh, the music he was recording because he didn't have a bass. And even though he was left-handed and Brandon was right-handed, he figured he could, you know, make it work. Uh -huh. So we're gone for a week. We come back. The day we get back, uh, we come into the house. We kind of separate. Susie, my wife, sits at the foot of our bed. And while there, she feels a presence of another person. And through her peripheral vision, saw a figure, a shadow figure. And she knew inside immediately it was Brandon. And this lasted maybe, you know, 30 seconds or something like that. The very next day, we get a call from James Linton. And James says, hey, Susie, I've got something to tell you, but I really don't know how to go there. And she said, well, just tell me, James. She figured he had broken the bass or something. Uh -huh. That wasn't it. He said, well, I was recording this new song. And while I was there, I felt this presence of another person with me. And I saw a shadow figure out of my peripheral vision. And I saw flashes of white light and things. And I thought I was just hallucinating. So I went and got water. I got lunch. I took a shower. But each time I came back, it got stronger and stronger. And then finally, I just kind of figured it must be Brandon. So I said, hey, Brandon, what do you want? And at that point, he said that he was guided to change the lyrics of a song he was working on and change the bass line to the song. And at the end of it, he said, "It's you know, this is the best song I've ever written, but I didn't write it. <laughs> uh, so there's a chapter that details that whole, that whole uh, event. I find, you know, it was a great song. We still, I still have it. And I, I love it. What's the name but of the it, song? It's called The Other Side. And um, I have a link to it on my website. So if people want to hear that, they can just go to markirelandauthor.com and go to the links. See that on the links or media page. I think it's links. And it, it has a link to that song. They can hear it. But even aside from the fact that a song was produced that, you know, apparently portrays a message by someone to get to us through music, um, even if people are skeptical about that, just think of, what are the odds of my wife having this experience and having that vision and then having the same identical experience through another person who was unaware of her experience, um, hearing about that the very next day. I think it's pretty wild. Right. And, Definitely uh, not a coincidence. No. And then it was after this that I kind of went on the, the path of having the multiple readings and within soul shift that I detail four different readings that took place with uh, different people. And I can touch on those a little bit uh, if you'd like now. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. So um, as I recall, I think the first of those was with uh, Linda Williamson of England. And this, this, I had her earlier because I couldn't get Alison Bois right away, as I'd mentioned before. And Linda was referred to me by someone who um, was also in England and connected through um, the Parasite, Parapsychology Association. And um, anyhow, Linda turned out to be a very warm person and very um, kind-hearted. She, her claim to fame really came about because of, most people have heard of the medium John Edward. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, I remember him on TV. So John Edward, um, when his, before his mother died, they had agreed on a secret code phrase or whatever. And this is, you know, along the lines of the Harry Houdini thing that he did before he died. He told his wife, Beatrice, he would leave a secret code. And if someone were to deliver that to her, that it would mean he, was, he still existed. Um, and the irony of that is today, if you look it up, it'll say, oh, it's never been solved. But it actually was solved by a medium named Arthur Ford. But the skeptics came out of the woodwork and tried to discredit him and the wife, Beatrice, claiming that they were in cahoots about this but there was really no grounds for that, for that at all. 
Hmm. Um, but today, if you look it up, they'll say it wasn't solved. But anyhow, um, based on that kind of idea, John Edward and his mother agreed to a secret phrase or a secret code. And um, before he had met with Linda Williamson, John had been to two other mediums that didn't give him that. But during the medium, I mean, during the reading with Linda, fairly early on, she says, I've got your mother here. And she says, she's the guiding light in your life. And, and he says, that's it. That's a secret phrase. He's, you know, she's a soap opera fan. And the guiding light <laughs> so that was her claim to fame. And she'd written a few books. Um, but she gave me a lot of information that was really interesting and compelling. I think if I go back and look at that now, I'd say the one thing that really stood out, she said that, that I was part of a part of a movement, if you will, to bring a new understanding to the world and that a large group would form around me and I really wouldn't have to do anything other than talk, share my story and be myself. And it would, people would naturally just be drawn to me. And what's ironic about that is I did, you know, about 10 years ago, work with another woman in, in Arizona to form an organization called Helping Parents Heal for Bereaved Parents. And that organization, really the reason that came about is because the other organizations like that will not allow the discussion of evidence for the afterlife or anything spiritual. They completely stay away from that. Mm -hmm. We felt it was very important. It's one of the keys to the healing process. Yeah. So he started a single chapter uh, of another name and I had approached her in 2011 to ask her, Hey, would you want to get together and like blueprint what you're doing with your local groups and we can put a website together, a newsletter. And she agreed. And lo and behold, you know, we started helping parents heal. And today we have, over 15,000 members worldwide. We have 90 affiliate chapters worldwide. We have, we've did a conference um, in 2018 that had 400 attendees, which was a sellout. We'd actually booked one in April this year uh, for the East coast in Charleston, South Carolina and had sold out with 600 and then COVID got in the way. So we've had to postpone that. But um, I look back at what Linda said, and I'm like, yeah, right. Like, I'm going to be, you know, part of this big organization. Here it is today, and there it is. She also said that um, these aren't things you can verify, but I believe them. And she's like, there are people on the other side and people on this side who very much want to bring this understanding to the world and and that I'm part of what she called the network. And um, some of the people on the network on the other side were, scientists like a man named Montague Keene, who was pretty well known in the field of parapsychology back before his passing, which I also think was in 2004 and actually fairly close to the timing of Brandon's passing. And there were others as well um, that go back through history that were interested in bringing this knowledge forth into this world. Um, and there are obviously researchers today that, that do this kind of work. And, and I know many of them like Tricia Robertson of the society the Scottish Society for Psychical Research. Mm-hmm. There's Dr. Julie Beichel, who runs, runs the Winbridge Institute down in Tucson. And they're one of the few organizations doing uh, testing on mediumship and have published a lot of papers in science journals on, on um, val- basically validating this, not only the statistical accuracy of the mediumship, but also ha- um, the effect on healing grief in people who are grieving uh, the University of Virginia Division of Perceptual Studies has a department. Well, that's the name of the department. But they, that goes back to Ian Stevenson, who did a lot of research into reincarnation and would actually go to tribes in um, you know, remote areas of Africa or uh, um, you know, and 
where he heard about stories of like a child at a young age saying they were actually somebody else or they'd live somewhere else. And with a lot of detailed names, like my uncle was so-and-so, my father was this guy. And, and so that he would go research and go to these other tribal areas where the child had claimed to been before and then uh, researched and talked to the people in that village and found out, lo and behold, yeah, there was somebody by that name and they were related to these names and, and so forth. So, um, but that department does research not only on reincarnation, but also they've done it on other things too, in, and including um, some research into mediumship, which was conducted by Dr. Emily Kelly, who I, I worked with and participated in as a sitter in one of her research studies too. So, um, so Linda shared other things too, but that, that was the first reading. Um, then I, I'm trying to sequentially, I don't remember exactly <laughs> what order they went in, but I think uh, of, of 2004, and she conveyed, you know, really without knowing much about me, I think one of the, the biggest hits she had was early on. Um, about two weeks before I met with Allison, someone who my father knew, came to me and he said, Hey, I've got this manuscript. I'm going to give it to you. It was in a box. It was, you know, about that big of a box. It was all eight and a half by 11 type pages. And, um, he, and I'm like, well, where did you get this? And he, and I was out of state at the time living in Denver. He said, well, your, your dad gave this to me for safekeeping just before his passing. I said, well, why are you giving this to me now? He said, I don't know. I just feel like I'm supposed to. So go forward two weeks. I'm in this reading with Alison Dubois. And one of the first things she says to me is, well, your father's showing me a book and I feel it's his book, but now he's handing it to you and it's for you to take forward. Um, <laughs> so that was pretty cool. And, and since that time, I actually was able to get that book published. It was called Your Psychic Potential, A Guide to Psychic Development. And uh, so that book has been published. It's out and available now and has been for some time. She also touched on a few other things. I think one that was pretty wild was, uh, and she knew nothing about my son, but she, she said, well, I've got a son here, and I feel like there's uh, something, I feel like drowning, like the lungs, you know, um, are filled, and there's a drowning effect. Well, when the autopsy was conducted, the physician who I'd spoken to said um, the asthma that Brandon experienced was it was almost the equivalent of drowning because his lungs had expanded to the point of almost touching in the middle, which only happens. And that's the, they do that to try and capture more oxygen, but it only happens in cases of drownings or severe asthma attacks. So uh, Allison actually perceived that same, same kind of thing, you know, in terms of uh, the effect uh, that Brandon probably experienced at the time he passed or just before he passed out. Um, so that, that was a remarkable reading. There's a lot of other hits in there. Um, mm -hmm. I don't remember all of them top of mind right now, but those are a couple that come to mind. And, um, and Jamie Clark was another one. He, uh, a couple of the main ones that I remember, one that I think was pretty cool was he uh, had described a photo of my son, Brandon and his brother, Stephen arm in arm. And it looked like a tropical place. And he saw him up high on a, pa a pass and he thought it was Hawaii. And so I didn't recognize this immediately, but later had to go through a drawer of old photos from a trip we'd made to Hawaii in 2000. And lo and behold, find a photo that matched the description that he said. So you, know, you couldn't attribute that to telepathy with me because I didn't remember that at all. Um, so that was kind of an independent thing that I had to go look up um, that was 
that was pretty cool. Um, and uh, he had also conveyed to my wife something that was, you know, trying to impart the idea that Brandon's around us a lot. And he was with his mom the day when she was at the grocery store and she was like digging for something, trying to find a credit card and couldn't find it. And that had just happened. She, in fact, had gone to the grocery store, but she forgot she had loaned her, her card to our older son, Stephen, um, so he could use it or whatever. And then she went to the store and didn't have it. So I think she had to call him and ask him to come there and bring it or something like that. Um, and then the last one of the four was with, uh, remember I talked about that lab at the University of Arizona yeah. that was doing the mediumship studies. I actually was able to get in there and be a test sitter. And there was a uh, Discovery Channel was there that day actually filming it for an episode they were going to do uh, later called One Step Beyond. And so um, there's also a clip to that on my website, markirelandauthor.com. If people want to see that, it's under the media tab. It's about two, two and a half minutes long. Basically shows the process of that medium and how, or that reading and how the medium couldn't see me. I wasn't allowed to talk to her until the end. Um, and, the, and then how Proxy had asked her questions that she had to answer. And that was really a compelling session too. Uh, she, she was asked, well, first off, it was the way that was conducted was stated, okay, I, we have a sitter here and um, there's a, someone the sitter wants to contact and that person's name was Brandon and Brandon is the, and before the, the researcher could state the relationship, the medium said son of the, the sitter. So she had actually mm -hmm. picked up on that already. And then she was asked, you know, how did Brandon die? What was his cause of death? And she said, uh, uh, my, my chest, my whole chest area, I just feel all this pressure in my chest. And then she said, and I, I feel like I, I want to throw up. And um, Brandon's buddy Stu had conveyed to us that just before Brandon passed out that he did vomit. Um, and there were another, a number of other hits too, along with that, that were really compelling. Again, the book really gets into a lot more detail on this. So I'm just kind of giving a broad brush, high level. Yeah. Well, one of the things that, that I found interesting too is more than one of them brought up seeing him fishing with his grandfather. Yeah, and that's interesting too. It, the fishing and then this dog, the small dog. Yeah. I mean, all of them brought up this small dog that he had kind of adopted, you know. And the, the fishing thing, I think, came back because it broke. I think there was a memory, maybe a joint memory that we had of him fishing when he was little. During the five years we lived in Denver, Colorado, we would go up to Estes Park. And, um, and in near there, there's a lake called Sprague Lake. And we would take the boys and go fishing for trout there. And so that was a common memory. So it was almost like my dad was filling in for me doing this fishing activity. So, um, you know, what is the next realm like? I mean, maybe people think, you know, if you're spirit, you're just, you're, <laughs> you're not uh, in a body or you're uh -huh. just floating around somehow or whatever. But I have a feeling it's, it's much more expansive than this world even. And um, you could probably do a lot of different things. Um, how it's actually executed, I don't know. I mean, who knows? The physics of that realm are probably much different than the physics of this realm. But um, I did get that, you know, repeatedly. The fishing thing, um, the, the little dog, um, there were a number of other things, too, that were, uh, that were c congruent that way. And I, I really, 
that made me even feel more impressed by the information that there was congruence in the information and not, you know, well, this is person saying this and this person saying that they each had unique things to share, but they also had many overlapping pieces of information that were accurate. Very interesting and accurate too. That's, that's what really caught me with the book is like the, the accuracy of these mediums was just, it was definitely beyond coincidence or luck, you know? And I think part of that comes down to the quality of the person that you're going to see. Um, Cause I'm actually, you know, for the last five years, I've actually been running a certification program for mediums. So I, the reason I started this is because after the book, the first book came out, I was getting barraged with people saying, I want to see a medium. Who should I see? And a lot of the people that I mentioned in the book and other celebrity type mediums, they tend to have very long wait lists. Like some are a couple of years long. So it's hard to get to see them because there's such in de- so much in demand. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they're high priced too, and people can't afford that. And that's yeah. probably just because, you know, they can command that because they're good and they have long wait lists. So it does regulate how many people try to see them. So I thought, you know what, there have to be other gifted people out there that are just unknown. So I decided to put this program together and I basically put them through five blinded readings that they have to conduct by Skype or Zoom or phone for someone they don't know. And then the recording, the sessions recorded and then transcribed and then the sitter has to grade it for accuracy, either noting each statement as correct, incorrect or indeterminable. And then they can award bonus points for specific information. For example, if they said, oh, your son's name is Stanley and it is, they can award bonus points for that. Or their favorite food was a pepperoni and artichoke pizza, you know, something like mm. that would get bonus points. So, yeah, I think, you know, I had dealt with top mediums and, you know, and that's why I think in part the results were good, um, but there are other really good mediums too. Right. You know, I had, uh, I guess it was not last week, but the week before, because I promote my podcast on Facebook. So I joined a lot of these psychic medium groups and one of them just sent me a message on messenger saying, Hey, there's, there's uh, somebody just, is there somebody on the other side who would just refer to you as, Hey, Gar. And I was like, well, yeah, my mom, you know, and she goes, well, your mom says, just keep doing what you're doing. And I was like, okay, by the time I, t- I took it with a grain of salt. Yeah. And then last week I interviewed this guy, Artie Hoffman. And he was also a psychic medium. And during while we're talking, he goes, does the number 21 mean anything to you? And I was like, well, it's my dad's birthday. It was the 21st. And he goes, well, your dad has a message for you. Keep doing, just keep doing what you're doing. (laughs) (laughs) So so, uh, what would your opinion, do you think those would be beyond coincidence or is that too vague? Um. I think you have to tell with your heart what you think, but to me, it sounds like they're probably, you know, pretty compelling. I mean, they're not that big. Um, And as you read the intro to my dad's book, the forward, there's a similar story there that comes back to my memory that my, that was kind of wild, but my uncle, after my dad had passed, my uncle was talking to me about meditation and goes, but never, he's telling me, you know, meditation technique, he goes, but don't meditate while driving. I thought, that's a weird thing to say. Why would, why would I ever try and do that while driving? But he said, don't meditate while driving. So my uncle passes October that year, just months after my son. 
And so fast forward to where I'm doing the forward to my dad's book, Your Psychic Development, and another medium friend named Deborah Martin, who's exceptional, she wanted to talk to me because she felt my dad had reached out and contacted her about the importance of what goes into the forward. In other words, setting the stage for this book for people who want to develop, doing it for the right reasons and not just for their ego or whatever, but to serve. And she says, and I, and somehow my uncle came through and she says, and he says, don't meditate while you drive. So, <laughs> I mean, where are you going to come up with that? That's not like a, a common thing to say. So that was pretty wild. I thought that clearly to me was my uncle popping through with that message. So, um, yeah, I think there might be something to that in, in your case, you know, but the way I gauge it too is like, well, if you get a reading from them, what's the quality of the rest of the information? So it's kind of like, if you go back to that story I first shared after Brandon died and my uncle shared that uh -huh. thing from my dad saying, you're the best parents that Brandon ever could have had, you know, you love to hear that. But then he gave me the specific information about the cause of death that was later validated. And so if I get a piece of validating information, I think, you know, he's accurate on the things I can validate. Here's a piece of information I can't really validate, but I'm going to accept that too, because the thing that could be validated was accurate. Not only accurate, it was specific. Yeah. yeah it was kind of funny too, because I think the day after the, the, it was a day of that interview that I had with Artie Hoffman, I, I went outside and there was the box of books that you had sent me. <laughs> okay. So, you know, I, I don't overlook those things. I mean, a skeptic could question it, but I think if you're open to just taking that stuff and just going with your heart, right. I think there's usually more to it than meets the eye. Yeah, there's just so many coincidences too. And another weird thing, this just happened, I think yesterday, and I didn't even talk to this person. Some person just out of nowhere wanted to be on my show, and she's a psychic that's been on Montel Williams. And my mom used to love watching the psychics on Montel Williams. <laughs> that's funny. But it was like all these weird coincidences that all sort of connected together. Yeah, um, and so I don't even – I kind of avoid the word coincidence anymore in cases like that. I just use the word synchronicity because it yeah. seems like a synchronous thing or something that's not just by chance. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I look at those things as having some connection or meaning. Not everything does. And people can go overboard and connect the dots on all kinds of crazy stuff and say, oh, this is beyond coincidence. I think you still have to be somewhat rational too. But when you see things like, line up like that, it's like, okay, there's something being conveyed to me here and I need to pay attention because that's kind of how psychic stuff works. It relies on very subtle information. Mm -hmm. It's the subtleties. I'll give you another example that's not in the book Soul Shift, but I do mention it in my second book, Messages from the Afterlife. And that goes back to when my sister Robin uh, was about to pass from cancer in 2006. I was in a hospice um, and she was, it was really sad because she was in a bed writhing in pain it looked like and her eyes were kind of rolled back and my mom was in a wheelchair sitting next to the bed and I could just see my mom just crushed by this and very very down and so I decided to walk over to my mom and I was going to comfort her but as I took the first step going to my mom this thing popped into my head and I just felt like hmm. and I felt like it was my dad saying um, well you guys are upset but we're not because we're preparing a party for Robin 
I didn't hear this. I didn't see it. It's just like an idea popped in. Uh-huh. So I went over, I rolled my mom away and I said, mom, don't feel bad. Um, I feel like dad wants you to know that they're planning a party for Robin. And so eh, a couple days later, Linda Williamson, the medium I'd mentioned earlier, who was the first one I met with, I had popped off a note to a number of friends just saying, you know, my sister's, you know, going to be passing soon. And I tried to, um, I'd actually tried to do a healing process on her. Um, but it, you know, I didn't think it was going to deter her from passing. And that's really all I said. So Linda Williams writes me back and she says, well, Mark, you know, I'm sure the healing helped. Sometimes it, it can't keep the person here on earth, but it could help them with the transition. And she says, as I write this, there's somebody here who wants to share a message. And I think it's your father. And he wants you to know that they're planning a party for your sister. <laughs> so, so, here, so you know, I shared this thing with my mom kind of thinking, is this just my imagination or what, you know, but I, had the guts to say to my mom and lo and behold, there's a medium coming saying the same thing to me a few days later. So I, I don't take that as coincidence. All right. So, so, so do you think like a lot of ordinary, like, like people that are just, you know, disregard certain thoughts as imagination could be having just psychic um, information popping in? Totally. Yeah. I think all of us have it. I think it, the degree to which we have it varies and also the degree to which we've developed it varies. The degree to which we have it, I think, can be genetic. You know, if I look at my dad, you know, ran in the family lines from both sides there. And, uh, but he also worked very hard to develop it from a young age, uh, you know, learning how to meditate and practicing and all these kinds of things. So, and maybe sometimes they use it without even realizing, you know, what it is. Maybe they're good at investing and they just have a knack for it. And they don't really follow anyone's advice or do deep dives into researching companies, but they just go with their gut. And lo and behold, they tend to be successful with that. Um, that could be a level in, of intuition. And in the book you're reading now, my dad's book on psychic development, he talks about these various levels. There's the emotional level, the intuitive level, and um, and, and so on until, you know, level of spirit and level of oneness he called, which would be kind of this broad consciousness connecting to this broader consciousness at an elevated level. So if that full spectrum exists and most people, you know, they're going to operate on that lower emotional or intuitive level. And, you know, they may just disregard stuff and then later mm-hmm. say, Oh darn, I wish I'd have listened to myself because I would have been done this instead of that, you know, but I, I think you're very, you're very much right. And part of it is a society we live in, unfortunately, really puts all this stuff off as superstition or, and act like they have all the answers when they really don't. You know, they have no clue how consciousness works. There's still what they call the hard problem of consciousness. And the reason for this is because they're still living with this materialistic paradigm where they want to pretend that everything comes from matter and that, you know, um, that our consciousness and mind is really just a function of brain. Uh, but there's a lot they can't explain. Um, take, for example, just near-death experiences where people claim to leave their bodies and then are able to report accurate information that they couldn't have known. Well, the case I like is uh, Anita Morjani, who wrote a book about her experiences. She actually was on her deathbed, um, looked like dying from cancer, uh-huh. and her, they left her body and went down the hall from where her body was 
to where the doctor and her husband were having a discussion far away from her body. Um, and basically the doctor conveyed to the husband that it looked like the wife was going to pass soon and, and what was going on. Um, but later she did come back out of this and then she reported that conversation in detail and everything she said was accurate. And they did confirm that they were down the hall from the room. So how can the brain be responsible for consciousness? Now, I'm not saying it doesn't work with consciousness and mm -hmm. is a conveyor of consciousness in this physical realm, but I see it more as a, a sifter of consciousness or a limiter um, so that we can experience this world um, and focus on living in this world in a physical body, whereas there's a broader level of consciousness where there's a greater awareness, expanded awareness beyond the brain. So. I kind of went off on a tangent there, but um, I think no, it ties I, 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 I talked about that quite a bit on my show about, you know, I, I don't know if you've read any quantum physics stuff, but quantum physics, some of that stuff sort of puts holes in our, in our view of reality and kind of puts consciousness, I think, at the forefront of what we're experiencing rather than actually, than, rather than matter. Yeah, totally. And I agree with that. I think from everything I've read and everything I think, and actually this goes back even to the ideas of Max Planck, who was like an early researcher of quantum mechanics way back when, and he, he felt that consciousness was primary. Um, Dr. Evan Alexander, who is famous for his, he's a neurosurgeon who had a near-death experience. He thinks that consciousness is primary, and I think consciousness is primary. And really, if you, there's just a few things you need to know about quantum physics, and I don't claim to be an expert. Um, somebody like Bernardo, Bernardo Castro would be good to go to if someone wants to know more about this and his views on consciousness because he's worked at the CERN lab and knows the quantum mechanics uh, field oh, wow. probably as well as anyone out there. But um, one thing that I think is really the primary one is the double split slit experiment which um, ties to the observer effect. And really what they discovered, and this has been repeated again and again and again and again in tests, is that the observer has an effect in bringing material reality into existence. Um, a slit experiment is that, you know, if a, I don't even, I better not explain this because I'll probably do it wrong, but, you know, whether a particle is a particle or a wave of light, Mm -hmm. depends on whether it's observed or not. So that tells me that our consciousness ties into that. There's an interconnection with all things in the universe. Um, and that, you know, and even if you go down to the quantum level to the smallest, smallest particles that they're even aware of are basically theoretical because they can't see them or, or observe them and underlying everything is just really energy and vibration. Um, so they can only go so deep even with the, the biggest, most powerful microscopes that they have. You can't observe the quantum level, the atomic, subatomic particles and below that. And to even call things particles is probably a misnomer when you get down to that level. So mm -hmm. that's, that's the problem with mainstream science. They want to act like, oh, everything's defined. We know everything. It's all made of matter. Well, wait a minute here. You know, <laughs> what's that time with consciousness and matter? Um, and how do you explain that? And then what's below that level that you can even observe? You, know, you don't know. That's the reality. You just don't know. Right. And, and what I find fascinating too is like, you know, like great meditators in the past, like, it's like they knew this before we even started figuring it out with science. Right. 
Yeah, it's interesting. You go back many, many millennia and read about, you know, <laughs> yogis and different types of people who were meditators or spiritual um, leaders that knew that, you know, that's the nature of the universe. It's, it's, a, it's a mental universe. Uh, consciousness is primary um, rather than the other way around. And really, it's, it's a shame this happened, but there was a split that happened in the 17th century that really was because at the time, government and religion were kind of one thing, and it was very oppressive to science coming out with new discoveries. Um, like Galileo, for example, you know, right. and the whole idea of the earth not being the center of the universe. So when, you know, that's viewed as blasphemy and if scientists were punished and their findings were repressed, that caused this divide between science and religion and, and uh, even spirituality, unfortunately, that kind of stuck with science to today. Really, in its purest form, science is a method of discovery. It's not a position but yet mm -hmm. it's become a position in academia to where, you know, there's these, it's, it's as dogmatic as any religion. It really is. Yeah, you have yeah. to subscribe to the religion of materialism and it's unfortunate. Yeah. I, I, I think at some point you may have to redefine or change what the scientific method is. Yeah. Well, and then you have people come along that introduce theories like, or the idea of falsifications and you have, um, you know, basically the idea that, well, if something can't be observed or measured, you know, then it's not part of science. Those are arbitrary types of, of things that have come into play over time. I think, you know, there are a few brave scientists now that are bucking the trend, that are doing research. But, you know, some of them take the risk of losing jobs if they work for a university or, or whatever. And yeah. it's a real shame. But I, I really feel like that. You know, for a long time, I worked hard at trying to convince skeptics or overcome skeptical arguments. And my second book deals with that a lot. But I'm at a point now where I'm like, look, I think it's really the grassroots movement that's going to change things. Because the people out there that know this stuff is real, they've experienced it firsthand. Um, and they want to know more. They don't want science restricted that way to where some dogmatic position is restricting what science can look into. They want the truth. And they're the ones funding all this through the university systems and through, you know, government grants. So maybe they don't want their money spent on, you know, researching the mating habits of a certain kind of bird. Maybe they'd rather know more about, you know, evidence for the afterlife or consciousness and, and how, how things work. Maybe that's more important to them. But I really think it's the grassroots level where I'm more focused now. Interesting. You know, an another experience that I, I had with this was when my father was passing, like we, he, we brought him home and did the hospice thing. And we had, you know, he wasn't, con he was in and out of conscious a lot, consciousness a lot. And we put a baby monitor in the room so he could hear him in case he was in pain or something. We could go give him medicine or if he needed help. And I would hear him talking through the the baby monitor to other family members who were deceased. He'd be having conversations with my mom, with my uncles, real conversations with people that, that, that had already passed. Like he was in that state of in between being alive and, and, and passing. It's a, that is a common thing. If you talk to hospice workers, you'll find out that it's very common. Um, 
there's also a phenomena called terminal lucidity where someone that's been in a coma or been in even a state of dementia or Alzheimer's um, just before dying will pop up and become very lucid and have a conversation. And you'll think, Oh my God, they've made a mere, uh, miraculous recovery. And then, then they die. That, he um, did that too. Like okay. one day, like, like a couple of days before he really went out, he, 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 he popped up and he watched the Yankees game. <laughs> Cursed at the TV, <laughs> ate some food, and then he went right back out. <laughs> and a couple of days later, he passed away. Yeah, wow. Um, I have a, an experience not identical to that, but um, somewhat similar. That's a personal experience. When my sister was a few days from passing, I had gone in to try this healing technique that I'd mentioned earlier. And I had done this, I call it a course on healing. It was like a hand, not a no touch type of healing. And so I went into her room. She was out. She was not awake or aware of anything. And I just went and hovered over her with this healing. And then I went and sat in the chair and I waited. And then a short time later, she kind of woke up and she said, she goes, she just says to me, they said what you did helped. I'm like, <laughs> uh, who is they? And then, then she was kind of coming back into her bodily way of thinking. And she says, Oh, Oh, never mind. So for a moment there, she, you know, she was tapped in and aware that she was told like, you know, this healing method that I tried had an effect on her. And she was told by that from some external source or people. Wow. So, yeah. So I think, you know, people having conversations with deceased loved ones shortly before they pass is a very common thing. Yeah. It's so um, one, one of the things that I, I think is important about this topic and I, is um, one of the things I think that people are most afraid of is dying or losing somebody that they love. And I think this topic takes some of that fear away. Like it doesn't take away grief or loss, but however, I think it changes the perspective of fear. And I think that's an important message you know, for everybody, really. You agree I with think, that? I think you're, yeah, you're totally on target. And um, first off, the fear of death is a real hindrance for people having a fulfilling life in this world. And it's really a shame. I think part of it's because our society doesn't want to talk about death. We focus on youth. When you look at advertising, it's always somebody, you know, that's 20 years old or whatever. <laughs> um, and, you know, and I think the other part is just because of what we talked about before, the materialistic view where the scientific people in academia are trained to believe that you're nothing but a physical body. You're, a, you're basically a biological robot. And when you die, it's just annihilation. And so that rubs off, you know, people hear that message or see it imparted. And then it's supposedly from the smartest people, you know, so this must be true. And, and that's a very nihilistic view and very depressing. Um, and I think it affects, it causes suicides, I think, too, and things like that, for people not living happy lives. we got to get past that because, God, you're here for a reason, a purpose. You have a path. You need to live fully. And if you're held back by something like that, it's really unhealthy. It's really sad. Um, so I think you have the fear of death. And then obviously people are afraid of losing their loved ones. And even if you know that there's more, you still are going to suffer 
but you at least can heal more quickly. And you come to realize this is just a short stint here of a broader spectrum of, of your existence. Uh, it's, you know, it's just a little snippet and it's something you're going through in my view for experience to expand yourself, to grow your soul and become more than you were when you came here. And a lot of that has to do with the challenges you face while you're here. And some of those involve suffering, which is unfortunate, but it's part of the thing. If you, if you look at anyone who suffered, um, you see somebody who after the fact, hopefully in many cases is, is a more compassionate, empathetic, and thoughtful person than they were before. Yeah. Um, there are some that will seal themselves off and become very despondent and self-absorbed. Um, but I think, you know, overall, from my observations, that's a small minority um, that are like that. But more people become better people afterward, and they view the world differently. And many of them, too, become more open to reading and learning about things that they never would have considered before. Um, and that expands their knowledge and their understanding of things as well. So, yeah, I think our society is responsible for a lot of that, um, our culture, and it's a real shame, and we need to move away from that and, and shift. And I think, again, that's that grassroots thing. I think people will shift. And if people are born with abilities, like my dad had, um, if more and more people have that or have their own intuitive insights, they're going to know inside themselves, like, this isn't all there is. This is, I'm not this body. I'm more yeah. than this body. So I think that's the other part too. Um, and then as you have people like a Dr. Evan Alexander, a neurosurgeon who has an experience like this, but also has the academic training and, and the respect of, of that community, maybe, even though there's people that are going to fight back against him because they don't want to hear that. Uh, the more people like that that come to the forefront, I think that will help too. I still wonder, I wonder why they still fight that even. It, it, to me, it just doesn't even make sense. I think there's a number of reasons. I think one is, um, to be quite honest, I think, you know, these, some of these folks have become hardcore atheists, and they think that any identification with being spiritual involves belief in an uh, anthropomorphic God, and they're not willing to go there. Um, but there, you know, it doesn't, to me, it doesn't necessarily mean that if you were right, me either. And your, your idea of God, it's a very limiting concept, even using the word. If you go back to the ancient Hebrews, they weren't allowed to say any word or conceptualize or idol, or create idols to represent God. Um, to me more, that's more like what God is, is like this ground of all being, uh, this universal consciousness at the highest level. I mean, nothing comes from nothing. You don't have a whole universe come from nothing. Um, so that's where I think consciousness was primary. And that consciousness, you could call God, you know, before any of us came in this physical realm of being. But I think they're hung up on that. They don't want to go back to a religious type of state. They're afraid of um, having to accept a, that idea of a, a kind of a, a God that's a human persona. Yeah. But I heard Dr. Rupert Sheldrake say they're probably even more afraid that, you know, the Pope would come back into power or whatever. From <laughs> I think that's, that's a big part of it. I think there's also some ego involved because they've been able to play this card like, oh, the atheistic view is the logical way. It's the, uh, you know, we're smarter than you. We, you know, we know you guys are just have this imaginary fantasy world of, of a God and all this, and we're smarter than you. We're past all that. 
but in reality, what they've um, what they've come upon is is a worldview that they can't really completely defend, and one that's very depressing. Um, yeah. and, and it's not. I don't think it's healthy for people, really. Like it's and it's funny too. Like I don't know. Like I sort of consider myself a bit of an agnostic, but at the same time, I, I do believe that. Um, that we are existing within some type of conscious bubble of something else. You know, I, I think I, I read a book, you know, um, Yogananda describes it as a great cosmic dreamer. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's sort of like the definition that I've always kind of felt. That's interesting because I'm actually writing a song right now and um, it's called what you can't see. And one of the <laughs> And this just came to me because I I want to read Yogananda, but I haven't. But um, I start out saying, so you just believe in the things you can touch and see. But later on, I say, um, mind was first and dreamed this world. And what I meant by that was this world was dreamed into being. The universe was dreamed into yeah. being. Was that mind was first, that universal consciousness. So when you say you're an agnostic, I have no issue with that. I mean, it basically says, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I can't explain it, and I'm not going to attempt to. Yeah, and maybe, maybe you say, I think I know that things are kind of like this, or I think there's this, and I think that's perfectly healthy. But the atheistic position that some of these people take is they say, I do know, and there's no meaning to anything, and it's all just <laughs> matter. And, you know, you're, uh, what you think of as consciousness is an epiphenomenon of the brain, and they can't support any of that. Yeah. Um, so... Uh, I have no problem with somebody saying they're agnostic and I'm agnostic about certain things. And that just means I don't know the answer to those or how those Mm. work, but I may have a broader sense of knowledge that just like I would say, I know there's more. I'm confident there's more. Um, Do I all know all the nuts and bolts of how everything works? I don't claim that. No, (laughs) no. And I don't think anybody can, because I think it's too expansive. I think even for a, for a human being to say, they know everything it is the most ludicrous, ludicrous thing that could be said because I don't think we have the capacity in this physical form that we're in to know. I think it's too limited. You have, you know, people come back from near death experiences and they have a very hard time conveying in words what they experience. Even like colors, they say they've seen colors that don't exist on the earth. It's, beautiful expansion of color um, they have gained knowledge that they that they can't even convey through words so words are limiting you know they work well here on the earth <laughs> but they're limiting and human awareness is limiting there's a kind of a radical uh, left uh, episcopal priest who's probably semi-retired bishop john shelby spong who talks about how could a horse know what it's like to be a human so maybe it's like our attempts to understand what it's like to be God or, or beyond this world. Maybe it's similar to that, you know, yeah. we just don't have the capacity or capability, at least in our current form to understand everything. And maybe we're not meant to maybe because like my view is more, if we're here to grow and evolve, not just biologically, but spiritually in, in terms of our soul development, the, the eternal part of us, then if it was too easy to be able to see beyond that, 
maybe you'd want that. You wouldn't want to stick it out here and go through the muck <laughs> and mm -hmm. mud of living in this world and dealing with the crap that you have to deal with to get through it, but to do necessary work. Just like you didn't want to go to high school maybe when you were a sophomore, <laughs> take that class you wanted to sleep in that day, but, but you went anyhow and you got an A and later on that paid dividends for you. Right. Yeah, I, I I forget who I was interviewing, but they said that uh, that 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 people that he their their opinion was that people that are we choose to take on is this life as a human being, and in order for it to be effective, we have to not remember what our previous existence is in order to get the full benefit of this life, which is some type of growth. Yeah, my father, that would be how he viewed things. And I, I do to some degree, too. I just don't claim to know exactly how all that would work, or, and I can't prove it. But no. I think, you know, I do think we're cut off. Again, I think that's where I talk about the, the brain being kind of a limiter of experience. That if you, if you existed before this and you had a hand in planning what you were going to do when you come here to achieve certain outcomes, um, but you knew that, like, you would want to be blinded from other factors that would keep you from completing that mission. That makes some sense to me. I know there's a man named Robert Schwartz who's written a couple of books on uh, what he calls pre pre-life planning. So he gets into that at a deeper level, but you know, part of what he conveys is his theory and I don't buy all of it to out of the nth degree, but in a general sense, I think that makes some sense to me. Yeah, I think so too. Um, so in your father, your father's book, uh, The Psychic Development, um, have you gone through his book and tried to use it to develop your own psychic abilities? I have a little bit. So um, here's what's interesting. I think I do have some of that capacity my dad had, but it's something that I would have to really focus on um, and, and work on developing. And so I'm still working a day job now. And I, the other thing is that I've got, if I decide to go down that path, it'll probably be later because I feel like I've got to really have the desire to do that. And I don't have a strong desire to do that. And there's a number of reasons for that. I think one is because if you decide to work in that field, at least in terms of the mediumship part of it, you're dealing with people who are very fragile. And there's a lot of responsibility that goes along with that. So you have to be able to convey uh -huh. accurate, specific, helpful information. And if you can't be confident in doing that, um, then I think you can do more damage than good. Um, so could I develop to be that? Maybe, you know, but I have to want that, you know. And right now, I don't have that drive to want that. Again, back to the Michael Jordan analogies, uh -huh. you know. I play basketball, but I can't be Michael Jordan, I don't think. <laughs> Is it okay to be a bench player? You know, Can I be that good? So um, I have had some instances, and I've done some development work that have kind of surprised me. You know, Back in 2012, I started doing test readings for, for people, and most of them were people I knew. So I knew, like, okay, I know your story or some things about your kid, but let's see if I can get any information that I don't know that's meaningful to you. And really surprised myself with some some of that stuff. Um, I remember one one of the most striking was a friend of mine named Lynn. Her uh, her son had passed in Germany, 
Um, they found his body in a river. It was really a sad story. Um, but, you know, I, I sat down with her and I just said, well, let's see what I get. And in terms of, you know, describing how it worked for me when I would try and do this, I would get either a feeling or like a, a visual impression or kind of a combination of the two. So I remember talking to her about seeing like a bicycle that was like half built. I saw the sprocket, but like it didn't have wheels. It was missing all these parts. And she then conveyed, well, that her son had had a bicycle he was building, but it was only like half built and it was in her garage. Um, there, and then I brought up like um, a purse and I saw her daughter. And I said, well, I see your daughter and there's a purse or something, a new purse. And she um, later, she then conveyed that she had talked to her daughter earlier that day and the daughter had a new purse. Um, and then the one that was kind of the icing on the cake, I, I'm like, this seems silly to me. I don't even want to share this, but a uh, paper airplane or paper plane. Cause mm -hmm. I saw like an image of a paper airplane in my mind. And she said, well, <laughs> that's crazy because he had lived in London for a few years with some flatmates and he fell in love with a song I'd never even heard of called paper planes by a band called MIA. I'd never <laughs> even heard of this. He loved the song. He was so so loved the song so much he created a dance about it and then he tried to convince his flatmates that you know this was the greatest song in the world so <laughs> some subtle little feeling that i didn't feel like sharing because it seemed too silly to me it turned out to be like the biggest thing of all to share with her so um yeah i do think i have some of that it's you know i think part of it too like i said there's the responsibility aspect there's the dedication aspect and you know it's um and the time and there's also like right now I think like the path I've taken is more one of a, a non-biased observer and a journalist like with when you read my book and the second one I think is more like a journalist account um, uh -huh. so the minute I say I'm this or I have that or I'm practicing that I lose all that I can't do that anymore I can't be that objective person who's a journalist who's a researcher type you know person so I didn't get a chance to read the second book. What is uh, that book about? So the first one's more of a memoir and the story of Brandon, his passing, and then the events afterwards. So it's kind of like a memoir and a journal. The second book is really a deeper dive into the phenomena. And I have various chapters. So it's almost like several books in one book. Um, first off, you know, really, I, I talk about an example of one of the most compelling examples of mediumship confirming or validating life after death that I've experienced. That's in chapter one. And that was with my friend, Deborah Martin, who's a medium that I mentioned earlier. But um, I have a chapter on skeptics and extreme skepticism and some, you know, kind of punch holes in their approach. And what they're really about is perpetuating uh, the cynical view, um, uh -huh. and kind of hiding or keeping people from being able to really look at and um, credible examples of, of, research that's been done in this area. So the chapter on the skeptics, there's a chapter on changing your worldview, like how we kind of fall into these patterns of thinking, how we think things work and how things are. And they're really just patterns. They don't necessarily um, reflect what true reality is. And to kind of question ourselves and look back at ourselves in the mirror. I've got a chapter on the history of religion and these phenomena, because some of them, you know, fundamentalist Christians will demonize some of this stuff psychic phenomenon, mediumship, but I really explored that at a deep level, both in their language, using biblical references, showing them, hey, there's examples of these things in the right. Bible, 
that are viewed positively, you know? That's one of the things that I found great. Like in Soul Shift, you mentioned that too. Like your father has some quotes from the Bible that said, hey, it's here, you know? And I think, you know, part of that whole thing goes back to when after that science religion thing split, you know, within hundreds of years of that, you basically, you know, the Bible refers to the gifts of the spirits and people having these abilities. And so then science is questioning, well, hey, your book says this stuff happened. How come it's not happening now? And really because people had lost touch with it and it had become forgotten and they became very bureaucratic like government, you know, and more interested <laughs> in the organization and the actual spirit of it and the subtlety and the, the sacred nature of it. And so then they started making excuses like, well, that was reserved for this period of time and there was a, a dispensation of it. And there'll be a dispensation in the future, you know, around the time of the second coming. But right now, nothing's happening. So, and a lot of people have been brought up in these fundamentalist traditions to think that way, like, oh, you know, no one does this stuff right now. Um, yeah, that happened in the past, but it's not happening now. If anyone does it now, it's the work of demons. Uh-huh. Well, there's nothing in the Bible that says that, you know, <laughs> that it was limited to one period of time. That's a man-made thing. Um, there, you know, there's a variety of perception perspectives on it throughout you got 66 different books that make up the bible the old testament new testament they're written by a lot of different people and authors and so you know my view is there's some there's some valuable stuff in there and there's some inspirational things and there's some truths but there's also some man-made stuff you know like if you go back to the, the the torah the original part of the bible that's the oldest in leviticus and deuteronomy they talk right. about things like you know if you have a a son that's rebellious um, that you need to take him to an adjacent town and have him stoned to death. Now who would think that that's like a positive thing or that God would want you to do that today? Um, yeah, you know, and, yeah. And those kinds of things or that slavery is okay, you know, and that you're able to will your slaves to your children. No one's going to say that that's a positive thing. I'm sorry, but to me, that's a man-made thing. It's an edict yeah. from bygone time it was really the view of the leaders of that time and the culture of that time. You know? mm-hmm. And so, but people have a hard time saying, Oh no, that's in the Bible. It's God's word. They're, they're too afraid to like use discernment about things like that. So they, you know, it, it, it pokes at their worldview, you know, and, and makes them insecure, I think. And that's, that's what you're dealing with there. But yeah, there's plenty of examples in scripture of these kinds of abilities that are viewed very positively Jesus used them. He talked to dead people in several accounts. Um, And uh, his disciples observed this. And and John has reported that he says, you know, the works I do, you can do, you shall do in greater works than these, if you believe to me. So um, I I think there's a lot of support. So that's one of the chapters is on that whole thing. I have another Mm -hmm. chapter involving my sister Robin. And before she passed, she wrote a secret message sealed in an envelope. So I tried the same experiment that John Edward had done with Linda Williamson and that Houdini had done. Um, but I had an added level of security to it. I really thought about how do I make this at a higher level? And I talked to my sister about this. I said, do you want to do this? Would you like to, it might help people, you know, if this is successful. So I really detailed that whole experiment. And when you get to the book, you can read that chapter. Yeah, a lot I can't of wait. So that was, that was pretty cool. Um, I have a chapter on synchronicity, the very topic we talked about earlier, like 
Is this a coincidence or is it synchronicity? So it's really, I delve into this whole subject matter and I give evidence for these types of things of, that have been collected by various research organizations and case studies over the years. So it's really a broad brush view and look at psychic phenomena, mediumship, the validation of it, the research into it, so that somebody can read one book to get really a good overall picture instead of going out and reading 15 different books from different people. Hmm. So um, what, what do you think about, I mean, like, is this like some people do take a scientific approach to, to some of this phenomena, like uh, people who are in the paranormal field, um, you know, that, are, that do things like EVP and, and, and use like full spectrum cameras and, and EMF meters and, and stuff like that. Do, do you think that approach could yield any results? Maybe. I mean, it's hard for me to really say. Um, the whole EVP thing, you know, I've only seen limited examples of it to know, like, well, what information's come through? How do you validate who it comes through? Is it possible it's picked up by a radio signal or some other communication? You know, um, so I, I don't c claim to be an expert in that area of the field. My, mine is more, I'm interested in um, more of the mediumship stuff and the information coming from that. Um, interested in near-death experience a lot. But as far as those other phenomena, I know they're out there and people are involved in that. I just don't know how you um, validate some of those things scientifically. Now, unless you use EVP and say you, you, know, you ask for specific information from a specific person and, and you got messages that came through that could clearly be heard and understood mm -hmm. and then validated, I think that could work. Um, but beyond that, I don't know how you scientifically really investigate that. Um, I, I do think, though, you know, people who have passed, there's a lot of instances where people say they get electronic kind of anomalies happen. That happened to us when Brandon passed. Like, <laughs> one time at, like, 2 a.m., my older son Stephen was having an out-of-body experience, he reported, uh, where he was out of his body, and he went into the living room, saw his brother playing his bass guitar, and hugged him, uh -huh. and he said that it felt so real he could actually feel the fabric. Um, and then he went back to his body. He looked at the time on the clock and, um, and then I think he said it was flat. It was midnight or flashing midnight. And excuse me, but I don't remember exactly because I wrote this a long time ago, <laughs> but then he, he woke up physically and the time that he'd seen in that vision was exactly right. We had in the middle of the night, like 2 a.m., um, the stereo comes on for no reason. It didn't have a timer. It just came on blaring an Iron Maiden song. So, uh, <laughs> stuff like that, you know. So people have that. So I think neuroelectronics may well be a tool that they can use. I've heard, um, I just don't know how to measure that or how to work with that, you know. I've heard of people talking about um, getting cell phone involvement that looks like it's from their loved one. Either they get a call that came from the number that had been associated yeah. with their kid cell number. And it says they're getting a call from their kid. They pick it up and they don't hear anything. Um, or, you know, maybe text messages. So I think that's an avenue that could be conducive or, or whatever for, for future exploration. Or um, I just don't know enough about it or how you would do that in what might be considered a scientific way. Right. 
Um, how about things like seances and Ouija boards? Yeah, you know, I think there's kind of a view amongst people in this field, um, and I tend to agree that, you know, the Ouija board maybe is something to stay away from for whatever reason, uh, maybe lower level entities that are closer or earthbound, um, closer to our physical reality can influence um, what goes on with the Ouija board. So you think you're getting information from person A, but it's person B or, mm -hmm. you know, something that, that you don't want. That's just been reported through different people in the field. Um, I just haven't messed with that. Um, and as far as seances go, you know, I don't know if there's anything wrong with that. It's, um, it really goes back to old spiritualism, really, that whole idea of having seances. And I guess the question is, well, what kind of seance is it? Is it hoping to get some sort of physical phenomena like um, table tapping or a, a table lifting or, um, you know, materialization of the spirit that they can uh -huh. see? I mean, uh, these, these kinds of things, I think... It really depends on how positive the environment is and the people who are involved probably more than anything. Um, I've heard reports of materializations that are pretty compelling and phenomenal. I did attend one um, once, I won't name names, <laughs> but that particular session didn't convince me per se that that was uh -huh. really happening. But I think there probably have been instances where it has actually happened and um, so, there's a broad range of, <laughs> of ways that people try and get at the phenomena for various reasons. I think the, the best reasons are not for personal gain, not for just amusement, yeah. but they're for helping, doing something positive to help people either with direction or healing grief or those kinds of things. Yeah, I've, I, I do agree with you that intention has a whole lot to do with it. If, if it's used to help people um, and, and, and to stop the grief and the fear. Yeah, exactly. And uh, the thing too, though, is I, I get back to why I, you know, I value the work of people who are truly gifted and have this ability because there are people out there who um, are deluded. They think they have more ability than they do. And there are people that try and rip people off too. I remember um, we were introduced to a couple who had lost their son to a drowning. This is like a year after Brandon had passed. And they talked to us to find out like how we'd healed and how we progressed and all this. And, you know, I mentioned some of this phenomena and how meeting with good mediums and whatever. Well, the wife, she got too impatient. And instead of coming back to me for a reference, when I told her I'd give her a reference, she saw some sign outside that said psychic reader and she went there and then she paid to get this reading from a person. And then she's told some very disturbing information from this individual, like, Oh yeah, your son, she's with your mother-in-law, but he's being held back and he can't cross over because she's an evil person. Mm. Um, and she's put a, a curse on him. But if you come back and we need another $150, I'll get the curse removed. I mean, that kind of unscrupulous crap just really, damages the whole idea of the field and it's despicable yeah. so that's why i'm very particular about you know um steering people to anything in the field and not and not just saying don't don't subscribe to everything be discerning you know look at this stuff don't lose your rational mind keep your rational mind in the process be open but um you know people in greece sometimes are very vulnerable 
and do things like that. Yeah. That they wouldn't normally maybe do. Yeah. There was but, a psychic in my hometown who ended up going to jail for, for scamming people. And that, that's, that's really sad because what you're doing there is you're just playing in the hands of the atheist, skeptic-type people we talked about before who would just lump everyone into that category and say, see, we told you this is just a bunch of crap. And they're all frauds. They're trying to defraud you and take your money. Yeah. And then, you know, they're trying to discredit mediums, even valid ones, saying, oh, you know, they're just out for a personal gain or whatever. They're preying on the grieving, not really realizing that some of these people actually have this ability and uh -huh. it can be very healing for those folks. So you have to separate the wheat from the chaff. And again, that's what I try and do with the program I'm running. And, um, you know, it's, it's very important that people do their research. If they want to get a, a reading from a psychic or a medium, do hmm. your research, find out that the person's, you know, valid through either a source like I've got or, you know, through strong recommendations from people. And even then, if you have a friend that like, oh, this person's great, you know, I got this information and blah, 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 and it made me feel better, ask some hard questions and really dig in. Like, well, how much did they know about you before you had the reading? And what information did they share that they could have known through research um, or stuff that no one would know? And, uh -huh. and ask those kind of questions first. Um, and I think then you'll be, you'll be happier with the results afterwards. If you get positive results, you'll know that it was on the up and up and it will be more healing to you then. How about, so like my, my wife, her, her, her parents passed away when she was young, like, you know, before she reached 20. And she used to watch this, this show um, the, about the Long Island Medium, mm -hmm. that lady who did that show. And, I think like a couple of times, like she came to our town and it was the, like the price was ridiculous. It was like $300 for a ticket and you weren't even guaranteed a reading like that. $300 was just to sit there and hope that she, 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 she calls on you. Yeah. Um, do you, do you think that's an abuse of, of, of mediumship? You know, it's a tough thing. I think, First thing you have to realize, any of these mediums are people just like anyone else. And everybody um, has a certain amount of ego or whatever. And they, you know, they're going to decide what they want to do going forward. And maybe their original mission changes over time. So I'm not going to point and judge at her, you know, does she have ability? I think so. But yeah. when you see the show on TV, you know, it's been edited. So you don't know what they're editing out. You just see the positive hits. My guess is she's not hitting 100%, but I've seen some stuff, and I've watched it a few times. I don't watch it all the time, but there's enough there where I think she probably has some ability. I also saw her on another Dr. Oz episode where they actually hooked her up to a brain scanner, mm -hmm. and they did some testing with her where she, um, they got a normal reading and then a reading after she, while she was giving a reading, um, a, a psychic reading or a mediumship reading, and there was a clear difference. And what it showed was actually when she did the mediumship and she felt she was connecting the spirit, that the brain was actually shut down mainly. So, and that actually correlates to other research I've seen done mm -hmm. for mediums. So that made me feel like she probably has this ability. Yeah. I think she's right. for real, but then what somebody does with it, it's kind of up to them. Personally. I mean, I think if I had that type of situation, I wouldn't choose to do that because I feel like, Hey, I'm, drawing all these people in, I'm charging them a lot of money. You know, I could do that because I have the notoriety, I have the following and I can make lots of money. But 
for me, it's an ethical imperative, you know, deciding whether or not to do that. Um, you know, somebody may go there and spend the 300 and get a message or even just witness somebody else getting a message uh -huh. and that heals them. And there's a value in that. Others may not and just feel like I paid too much. Well, the 300 bucks you just paid, you can actually see when the mediums on my certified medium site for yeah. half of that and have your own reading guaranteed, you know, and you can't guarantee it's going to be perfect or it's going to give you everything you want because no medium is right all the time or is able to have a good session every time. But um, I think the individual has to come down to realize, look, just because somebody's got a big name doesn't mean they're the only one that can do that or that they're even better than somebody else. Yeah. You know, there are people that I've met who have, that have little notoriety, but they're very, very good and maybe better than the big names on TV. Right, absolutely. My dad's, time, my dad's name really wasn't that big. I was surprised for as good as he was, as gifted as he was, that somebody like Jean Dixon had a bigger name than him at the time, and she really didn't do that much. I think her, her claim to fame was she predicted President Kennedy's assassination. Um, or, yeah, she did, and she also predicted he would win the presidency, but then she backtracked at the last minute and said Nixon would win. Um, mm. So, you know, why did my dad not get his due when somebody else who didn't even have anywhere close to his level of ability get it? I, I right. don't know, but, you know, uh, I think you just have to, again, discernment, research, take your time, look into it. So before you spend that 300 bucks to go see somebody in an auditorium with thousands of people, maybe you want to have your own personal experience and try that instead and spend less money doing it. Yeah, ab absolutely. And, and, and the other thing that I think about it and, and what I like too is like, like your father's book is like, and, and it, got, like it had that quiz in there you know, about your psychic development. And, yeah. and I took the quiz. And I think I scored like 120 on the quiz, you know. And, um, but then afterwards, after you take the quiz, he's like, well, you can score low on this quiz and still be able to divide, develop, you know, your, your, your psychic yeah. abilities, depending on how much work you're willing to put into it. And, exactly. Yep. And so people can learn it on their own. And there's, books out there like what you've put out to help people do that so you know and i think that's great i think that's like invaluable information yeah if you look at the parents that are part of the organization helping parents heal that i mentioned earlier you know, a lot of them have really benefited from some practices um through that leverage me um meditation and other kinds of methodologies to feel a sense of direct connection with their kid so you're not going through a medium. Um, but you have to be, again, you have to be open to considering that this is a real connection as opposed to just dismissing it and saying, well, I just imagine that or, oh, that felt good, but I don't think that was really my kid. I think, you know, as you go into that, that's really the challenge is trusting yourself and trusting the experience. Like, hey, I know that was a real experience. I, I believe that that was real and I'm willing to accept that as a gift. And, and that's, that's the other part, you know, and you might wonder why one medium might go to another medium, like John Edward, why did he go to somebody else for the, that phrase? Maybe, you know, could he have gotten the phrase himself? Well, the thing is, like I talked about before, it's subtle sometimes. So if you get the information as a vision or an idea or whatever, are you going to trust that you just made that up? And in his uh -huh. case, he already knew what it was, you know? So, um, but I know other mediums like, um, 
Allison and Lori, who I mentioned earlier, might read for each other. Well, if you get information from somebody else that, that hits home and mm-hmm. is specific and means a lot to you, then you know, hey, I didn't just make this up in my mind. Um, and, and that's, that's part of it. But I do think, you know, the direct experience thing can be very valuable. There's a man named Dr. Mark Pittstick who has done um, a process with our parents where he kind of leads them in, I guess you'd call it a guided meditation where they, they experience a visitation with their kid. And, and that means a lot. Uh, there's also, there's a, a man named Dr. Alan Botkin, and this is going off in another area, but he's to, he developed um, what is called assisted after death communication. And he did it by, he actually learned this process by accident while dealing with some uh, Vietnam vets who had PTSD. Uh-huh. He was using EMDR. I'm not sure if you know what EMDR is, but it's eye movement rapid desensitization. Rapid eye movement desensitization. Uh-huh. Basically, like putting something in front of somebody's eyes and getting them into an altered state. But through that and some other practices, he would get them into an altered state. And while in that state, they would actually experience contact with soldiers they killed in Vietnam who were, came to them in kindness and forgave them. And that provided a level of healing that you couldn't, there's no other way you could get that. Right. And Botkin would say, you know, I can't tell you that what they experienced was real, but it's real to them and they were healed from it. Maybe it is real, you know? Um, I think that that is a real method that can be used for people who have a hard time uh, with other practices or can't uh, find a solution in other ways. There's a couple that lives in the San Francisco Bay Area I know whose son had died and they'd learned about this. And there was another practitioner in the Bay Area who made a, a, they booked an appointment with to go through this process. And the husband went first and um, I guess it took a really long time to get him into that state, but he did get there and he said he saw his son and the son said, hey, dad, this isn't going to work for mom. And then he said, oh, and ask mom about the color code book. So then he's done with his session. The wife is next. He doesn't tell the wife that it won't work for her because he doesn't want to bias her. So she goes in to have her section session. She has it. It doesn't work for her. Then she comes out and then they have a discussion and he says, um, is there something about a color code book? And she says, oh, yeah, before, you know, their son died, uh, she had bought this book called The Color Code Book, and it basically talked about colors correlating to personality traits. And so this is something that was only known between the mother and the, and the son. Yeah. So that's a pretty cool piece of validating information for that, you know, being a real connection. Yeah, that's specific. Um, so we're probably close to wrap time here, aren't we? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just I want to say one thing. Like, like you mentioned about like, like, like for example, like I, I'm not psychic, but I, I learned how to read tarot cards when I was a kid. But the one thing with that is I could never read for myself. You know, mainly because I think I'm just too close to myself. You know, I, I don't have that objectivity, but. And you mentioned like the mediums using other mediums that like that just makes so much sense to me. Yeah. Now you get that. You can see why that would be because, and I've never used tarot cards. I have no idea exactly how they work, but I'm guessing that you, you turn it over, you have a symbol. It's kind of like a, an aid or a crutch really for what is a psychic process, I think. So that card, 
leads you to say something, but part of what you're saying is probably what you think the card represents, but it's also some, some gut level intuitive thing that comes with that. Is that how it works? Yeah. It's a tool. Yeah. Um, so where can my, um, thanks for being on. First of all, I mean, I was really excited about this and thank you for sending the books and give me a chance to, to read them and really prepare for this. Sure. And, and uh, where can my listeners um, find you? So my website is markirelandauthor.com. That's M-A-R-K, Mark with a K, the country Ireland. So Mark Ireland and the word author, markirelandauthor.com. Everything's there. So if you go there, you, you can read articles um, that have been published that I was involved with. You can mm-hmm. see links to videos I'm in, talks I've given, other interviews. Um, there's links to the Helping Parents Heal website. There's links to my certified medium website. You can see my dad's show. There's a link. I mean, my dad's appearance on Steve Allen show. There's a link to that. Um, and then all my books are there. The three books are Soul Shift, Finding Where the Dead Go. Um, my dad's book, Your Psychic Potential, A Guide to Psychic Development. And then my last book, which is my newest one, Messages from the Afterlife. But I'd say if you're more science-minded, Messages from the Afterlife really is going to fit you. If you like some science, but you want more of a personal story and journey, uh, Soul Shift is going to be better for you. Or Trial 3. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of funny, too. I-, I took a picture of myself holding your dad's book. It posted on Facebook and I said, your thoughts won't be safe for me anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Good job. So I got, I got quite a bit of a reaction out of that one. (laughs) I enjoyed this talk because you got into a deeper dive on some topics and really it wasn't just like what was in the book, but like my thoughts about certain things. And uh, I enjoy that a lot as having those kind of deeper discussions. I'm glad you, I, I, totally, I love talking to you. And, and that's why I don't, I don't plan these interviews either because I think um, I just kind of let the universe take over and whatever's supposed to happen is going to happen. Cool. All right. Well, thanks for being on. and Have a Good great thing. day. Take care. You too. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Everything Imaginable on KGRA Radio. You can reach Gary at everythingimaginable2020.com or email him at everythingimaginable2020 at gmail.com. He's also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. You can buy t-shirts, coffee mugs, and other merchandise to support the costs of producing this podcast. Click on the merchandise link at the top of his page, www.everythingimaginable2020.com. Oh yes, I almost forgot. You can buy his book, Enlightenment Guaranteed. It's the only book on Zen that you'll ever need, and it's on Amazon. It'll change your life, because remember, everything that exists was first imagined. Hey, if you loved what you listened to, don't forget, rate, review, and subscribe.